Today's guest on the show, oh, I should have checked with you. Is it Jeff uh, Vandreau? Vandreau? Uh, it's America, man. Just Vandreau is fine. Yeah. Vandreau, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to put the French spin on it. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. It's we. I actually, I don't have any French background. That, uh, that name, my last name kind of got picked up by my grandfather when he was, a, he was a teenage runaway in the States. So... My background is from Italy on one side and Russia on the other. So I don't even, uh, I speak English, Spanish. I speak English, obviously. I speak Spanish pretty well. I speak Italian. I'm getting a little better. I'm getting better and better at Italian over time. French, not really at all, other than what I understand from knowing Spanish and Italian. So, yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Well, there's the intro, ladies and gentlemen. I was going <laughs> to do some kind of, but that, that, <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Well, Jeff uh, Vandrew, uh, founder of the uh, key, KeeperIRA.com, where he um, spends his time uh, advising people around uh, tax issues and uh, liabilities and um, you know, uh, legal issues and um, how people can look after and grow their Bitcoin from what I can understand, but we'll get into exactly that. And um, Jeff has been on um, a few podcasts uh, of late where um, he's been talking a lot uh, around um, different um, political ideals, I would say. Uh, would that be a, a good way to... Um... Sure, you could think I use the word term political economy, but you know, whatever you want to call it. Political yeah, I economy, I have, no Excellent. I have no objections. Yeah. And I find myself just getting um, completely uh, tied up, you know, as a British guy, um, trying to understand all of the, uh, the nuances and different, um, there seems to be, I spoke to Jeff about this, there seems to be a lot of blurred lines between uh, socialism, capitalism, libertarianism, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I would just really love somebody to just put me straight on you know what is what in a, a really kind of um easy to understand way and i think jeff would be the perfect person to do that so jeff could i ask you sure. um you know what well, could you explain to me you know what those things are and how they overlap or why they overlap and um you know like the different nuance in europe to compared to the us or Sure. So uh, I, the way I'll, and first of all, not everyone would agree with my characterizations here, right? It's sort of the nature of it, but I'll tell you, you know, based on my reading, my beliefs, things that I know, you know, how I would characterize all these different movements. Since, you know, as we talked before we went live here, um, that's something you definitely had a lot of interest in. So I think that before we even get into that, it's sort of important to define what liberalism is because we live in an almost hegemonic, you know, global system of liberalism right now. And when I use the, the term liberalism, I'm using it more in the traditional sense than I am, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, than in the sense that sort of distorted sense that it's kind of used in, um, you know, US cable news. So by liberalism, I mean basically a, you know, a political and philosophical system that's based around the idea that the individual uh, comes before all else, okay? In other words, uh, your, your only real conception of the good in a liberal system is the good is the individual not having his particular preferences impinged upon, both in his personal life, in his commercial life, et cetera, et cetera. So capitalism as a system is inherently a very, very liberal system. And in fact, if, you were, if you're building a political system around liberalism, the corresponding economic system would almost have to be capitalism, right? I mean, that's, that's just sort of uh, essentially how it goes, or what we think of as capitalism, maybe with a couple of exceptions that I'll get, to, get into in a minute. So you mentioned a couple terms there, like libertarianism and uh, socialism, okay? Libertarianism is interesting, because like, the word tends to be used differently in Europe than uh, the United States, although the different strands of libertarianism exist on both continents. And I'm not a libertarian, so anybody that is a libertarian, please forgive me if you disagree with my definition of terms here, but I view libertarianism as essentially maximal liberalism. So it's liberal, it's sort of the, the logical end of, of liberalism, where that the individual is uh, maximally important. Individual preferences are maximally important sort of a denial of the importance of collectivity, um, et cetera. I mean, you're sort of getting the idea here. And there are various strains of libertarianism. So 
in most of the world, if you were to just say libertarian and not give any further descriptors, they would assume you're talking about libertarian socialism. So libertarian socialism is essentially a type of, or sometimes this is also called left libertarianism. This is not usually what Bitcoiners are talking about, by the way. Uh, but libertarian socialism is sort of an idea where it's socialism because property is not private. There's socialized ownership. But it's libertarian in that there is no giant central planning entity dictating the economy. So in libertarian socialism, generally the way those guys envision a political and economic system is property is owned collectively by the community, but there are still markets at play. People are still engaging in commerce with one another. Um, prices aren't set necessarily from up high. Libertarian socialists generally have strong beliefs in free movement of labor and capital. Um, good example of a libertarian socialist uh, is Noam Chomsky, right? He's probably the most famous of the libertarian socialists. And he's actually American. Um, you know, there's also, there are left anarchists are basically maximal libertarian socialists. They're the most extreme type of libertarian socialists. This was the predominant form of socialism as well before Karl Marx um, really started writing and becoming, uh, you know, this sort of towering figure over uh, European history. Um, what a lot of people aren't aware, there were a lot of socialists that came before Marx. Marx actually used to mockingly refer to them as utopian socialists. Uh, and they were typically more in the libertarian socialist tradition, which again, still exists today. People like Chomsky, um, even if you read socialist publications, like if you read a magazine like Jacobin, which is a socialist publication, they'll be split. Some of their writers are more like Marxist socialists. Some of them tend to fall more on the libertarian socialist side. So that's your sort of one of your first major strands of libertarianism. You then have your, what are sometimes called right libertarians or American libertarians or people more in that sort of tradition, um, which is usually where most of the Bitcoin people tend to fall. Um, and that is very similar to everything I said about maximal individual liberty with the liber libertarian socialists. That's why the term libertarian is applied to both of them. Um, but the difference is they don't believe in any sort of collective property ownership, typically. Uh, you know, property, they extend that individuality to individual ownership of property, okay? But they have the same sort of um, overarching strong belief in markets that, um, you know, a libertarian socialist would as well. And then there are anarchists in that, cat, in that camp as well. So those would be the anarcho-capitalists, would be the furthest that you can possibly take that sort of brand or strain of, if you want to call it right, we'll call it right libertarianism to anarcho-capitalism. So if you want to learn a little bit about the differing perspectives of these organizations, like uh, an, ex an example of an anarcho-capitalist uh, organization would be like the Mises Institute, which you probably hear a lot about on Bitcoin Twitter. An example of a left anarchist or, you know, uh, an anarchist in the libertarian socialist uh, tradition organization would be C4SS, the Center, Center for a Stateless Society. Um, if you want to get more of an idea of their sort of uh, tradition of libertarianism and, and how that works. Um, I guess since we went into it a little bit here, we should also talk about socialism, right, which is socialism and communism, which are very broad terms um, that different people can certainly use differently. Part of the reason why is, so again, socialism predates Marx, right? We tend to, uh, you know, when people think socialism, communism, we tend to jump, to, jump right to Marx. But that's not necessarily, there are other traditions in socialism that are not, not Marxian. Um, the idea behind socialism in general is that you have a socialized ownership of the means of production. So socialism was, a, was birthed from the industrial economy, okay? Before industrialization, there really wasn't much of an advantage to giant economies of scale. So people kind of just did their own thing. You might have a little store, you might have a little farm, but there wasn't really too much of an advantage to to you know, bring that together into a larger operation. And typically that wasn't how it worked before industrialization. 
socialism was a reaction to industrialization and that when industrialization happened, we basically created this new wage system, right? Which socialists and distributists as well, which we'll talk about a little later, tend to refer to as a wage slavery system, um, which essentially means most people, they're not, uh, they're not, they don't have a direct connection to the fruits of their labor. They labor for someone else in exchange for a wage from that other person. Um, and socialism was a reaction to that because, it, you know, the socialist tradition sees that uh, at its most basic level as a form of exploitation. Um, and the socialist tradition seems to eliminate that exploitation by, again, socializing the means of production, which can mean different things. We talked about libertarian socialists, how they would do it. Um, Marxist socialists are unlike libertarian, libertarian socialists are liberals, right? As we talked about before, that's their, their basic worldview is still liberalism, even though they may, they may interpret and, and in practice, think about things differently than other types of liberals, whether those be right libertarians or whatever. Um, they are still, they are still very much liberals while Marxists are illiberal, meaning they do not share that same focus on individual liberty. Um, and to their credit, I think to a large part, they can be right about this. Um, they think that when you maximize everyone's individual liberty, what can happen is really what happens. There are a small, only a small group of people are able to exercise that liberty and the rest of everyone else is essentially deprived of liberty due to the, the mere sort of economics behind it. So Marxist socialism is, I would define as an illiberal tradition within socialism. You could have illiberal uh, non-socialist traditions as well. Um, fascism would be, and I don't want to get too far into this, it's not a major force in the world today, but fascism is an illiberal, not socialist, not Marxist tradition, and that fascism typically doesn't. In a fascist system, fascism is a corporatist system, meaning um, the state is where is what's um, sort of holds maximal value, typically because the state is seen as an extension of the people, right? There's sort of this idea that the state isn't just a governing entity; it's the it create it's sort of this representation of a primordial ethnic group or somehow other you know primordial group of people. That's sort of the idea behind fascism, which is also an illiberal ideology. And I should say. The liberal illiberal thing is not binary, right? I mean, no one is perfectly liberal. No one's perfectly illiberal. No one fits into these groups um, in perfect, you know, individual little different ways, you know. And a lot of people believe in, you know, uh, mixed systems where they might believe in, you know, a mixture of, uh, you know, I believe in a system that contains some elements of both capitalism and socialism, right? And a system that's that is liberal, but not necessarily maximally liberal, right? So there is there are obviously shades of gray among all these different things. So before I go any further, I mean, do you, I'm sure you you might have some, some before I even talk about distributism or any of that. Yeah. You have some questions there you, you'd want to throw at me. Yeah, I mean, all right. <laughs> Let's look out 10, 20 years ahead. Okay. The, the citadels have been, have been built. Right. Which one are you going to? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> if citadels are built, I mean, that, which I sincerely hope doesn't happen, if that right. was really the, if that was truly the future, I mean, then we, then we kind of have our answer. We're, we're sort of living in a right, an extreme anarcho-capitalist society, right? Mm -hmm. In that, like, people are organizing themselves. Uh, there really isn't any sort of state power to the point where people have to live within the walls of a compound to even provide basic protection for themselves. Essentially at that point, I mean, society, any sort of social contract would have been completely broken down, um, you know, in that situation. So that would not be my preferred, uh, I guess, future. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. I, I hope it just stays a meme, a, a, a quite a fun one, but a meme, no less. Um, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, you touched on, um, di what's the word you use? Distributionism. Distributism. Yes. Distributism, excuse me. And it's funny because uh, there's a big shout out to uh, American Hoddle. Um, he pinged me on DM because he knew I was going to be um, interviewing you. Yeah. His question would be, um, how do you see, well, first of all, my question is, you know, what is that to you? And um, his, his follow-up question would be, um, how that, 
how that might look in practice. Sure. So uh, distributism, there have been like a variety of ideologies that have called themselves this word. I don't use this word because it's, it's uh, it has a negative emotional resonance because it's typically um, tied to fascism, but third position ideologies. And all that means is something that's neither socialist nor capitalist. It's seeking to create a third way to approach political economy. People don't, I, I'm only using the term because it's pretty well descriptive, despite the fact that we don't usually like to label ourselves that way because it, it typically brings about memories of like Mussolini and, and things of that nature. So, cause that was one attempt to go in that direction. Uh, Peron in Argentina was another prominent attempt um, to sort of break out of the, you know, capitalist socialist binary that sort of has dominated the industrial era. Um, distributism is another one that's a bit more obscure. Um, so distributism, it's important to know first that it, when, all, when all this industrialization was happening, right, the, the world was changing greatly. Socialist movements were starting to spring up throughout Europe. Um, you can sort of get the picture, right? People were living in pretty bad conditions. Um, there really was a lot, there were a lot of exploitative labor conditions going on at this time. In the midst of all of this, uh, the Pope wrote an encyclical called Rerum Novarum uh, that essentially represents, even to this day, the Catholic Church's official position on the relationship between labor and capital in an industrialized society. Um, now, despite it coming from a Pope, it's, it's not particularly religious. Um, you could read this, not be a Christian at all, and sort of understand the precepts behind it. It was very broad. Um, the idea behind it was, you know, the Pope sort of uh, rejected both capitalism and socialism as those terms were sort of used at the time, or the most extreme examples of both of them as they existed at the time, and basically elucidated a, a system where employers sort of had a, an obligation to treat their employees fairly and pay them a living wage. Uh, employees had a responsibility to like do their work and not commit sabotage. Private property should be respected, but that one of the ideas in there, and this is where distributism comes from, was that while private property should be respected, the legal system should be structured in such a way such, so that it should be broadly distributed. In other words, you, uh, the legal system should be used in a, in a the use of positive law should encourage more broadly distributed capital throughout society. That was one of the ideas. So from that encyclical, numerous movements sprung up. Okay, there was the Catholic worker movement, uh, which that's more of a libertarian socialist movement with Catholic characteristics. Um, there are explicitly, there are less liberal Catholic socialist movements. Um, and then for purposes of today, the one that we're probably going to be most interested in that sprung out of that encyclical was distributism, um, which sort of came about in the early 20th century, um, was written about by predominantly during that time frame by Hilaire Bullock and G.K. Chesterton, who were both very prolific authors. They're, they're your countrymen. They're both British. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, so you probably know a little bit of British history, I imagine, being from that country. <laughs> Um, they were both Fabians. Are you familiar with the Fabian Society in Britain? Nope. That's where they started. Okay, so the Fabian Society still exists. The Fabians were in the in early 20th century Britain. They were a socialist group that wanted to, they advocated for a gradualist version of socialism, not a violent revolution or a violent overthrow. They sort of advocated for slow legal changes over time to, to move towards a more socialist society. Your labor party was basically birthed at, in large part out of the Fabian, out of the Fabian movement. Um, a lot of the early labor politicians were Fabians. The Fabian society still exists today. Today, I mean, I'm not in Britain, so please forgive me if you're British and I'm mischaracterizing it, but has more of like a squishy Tony Blair type, uh, orientation, right? But that this is how the Fabian Society, you know, began. Um, Bloch was a Fabian before the Labor Party was formed. Bloch actually was in Parliament as a member of the old Liberal Party, um, which was sort of eventually displaced by Labor um, in Britain. Chesterton was as well. They eventually grew um, 
uh, disillusioned is maybe too strong of a word because they, they remained friends with the Fabians throughout their lives, but they moved away from Fabianism and sort of in their writings, particularly their reliance on Rerum Novarum, moved toward a, a new economic system that they advocated called distributism, which was neither socialist nor capitalist. Um, it was a, a it, it essentially was based around the idea that you want this, you respect private property, but you want this broad distribution of capital. It didn't reject markets altogether, but it also didn't ascribe any particular magic abilities to them or necessarily believe that a completely free and open market would, would get you to uh, an equitable distribution of capital throughout society. So it really does sit to some degree apart from both uh, socialism and capitalism. Um, it's not, you know, we talked about sort of, if you want to talk about a liberal, illiberal uh, scale, it's certainly not as liberal as, uh, it's not as liberal as libertarianism by far. Um, it's not even as liberal as the system that we have in the United States, like your average Republican or Democrat in the United States is probably more liberal than I am. Um, it's not as illiberal as say Leninism. Okay. Like it's, it's, it's not that far down the scale either, but it's definitely, it's sits somewhere in the middle, um, by our modern standards in our liberal hegemonic world order, which is sort of actually breaking down. We're rapidly becoming less liberal. You would, it would be a little bit more towards the illiberal side, I guess, to kind of tie back to where we started this whole conversation. <laughs> and to, to answer American Hoddle, how would you see, um, how do you see, what, how do you think that would look like in practice? Well, so I'm, we don't know for sure. Okay. So because the original texts on these topics were written in the early 20th century. Okay. So we don't entirely, a lot of their proposed solutions wouldn't work today. And I'll give you an example. Um, Chesterton wrote about how like, all right, we got all these unemployed guys in London. Um, they're kind of just getting itinerant work here and there in factories. What if we gave all those guys plots of land out in the countryside and had them do subsistence farming? Well, that was probably a good idea in like 1915 or something, but that's not really going to work today. So the, I, I can give you a few of my ideas I'll get into in a minute, but the general, not all distributists would necessarily agree. And I think where there is a broad agreement is that it would be a series of incremental changes that would sort of amount to throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? Nothing too radical. Typically distributists do not like radical change. Um, and that goes to Chesterton had this parable that he would tell, uh, called um, Chesterton's Fence. Uh, and I won't get into the whole story, but the idea behind it is you don't want to eliminate a structure within a society until you really, really understand it very well and why it's there and what all the effects of it are. So it's, a, it's an argument for incrementalism. So one of the ways that I always sort of think about um, distributism, you know, how this could be uh, implemented, say, like in a capitalist society like the United States over time, right? A good first step would be, first of all, there's some no-brainers, actually, before we even get to a first step, right? We already have antitrust law in the United States. We just need to enforce it. Um, and maybe we need to amend it to make it easier to enforce. You know, take a look at other types of integration that we're looking at breaking up, things of that nature. But that one's like a real no-brainer you know, in terms of, uh, of enforcing antitrust law. Um, obviously you can implement, you know, tax and regulatory structures that are friendly to small business. That's another real, this is not earth shattering stuff, right? This is very, very, um, this is small scale stuff, but it's important stuff, you know, important nonetheless. Where do we go beyond that? Right. So in terms of, Certainly in a modern industrial society, you can't have like some of these large tech companies. You're not going to have one in every town. That's just not how it's going to work. You might be able to have, you know, your own retail locations in every town. Maybe we'd have less chain retail, but you know, what are you going to do about these things that due to their nature um, have to be larger? Well, one of the things I like are that uh, is the idea that large companies and exactly how you define large is arbitrary and up for debate, but there's some level of arbitrariness in all these things. 
that large companies should implement what's called a, as a first step, a system of co-determination. Co um, and that is actually something that already exists throughout continental Europe. Um, co-determination is the idea that larger companies have to reserve a certain uh, number of seats on their board of directors for their employees. Um, so like in a US corporation, no matter how big you are, your board of directors is elected by your shareholders. In certain places in Europe, most notably Germany, uh, a certain number of seats are elected by the shareholders and a certain number of seats are elected by the employees, right? So the idea with a co-determination system is employees are getting more of a say in how this business is run. Um, it's going to look out for their interests more, um, perhaps even more than traditional unionization would. And I support unionization because right now workers are struggling to such an extreme degree that uh, I'm not going to begrudge any, any proposals to make unionization easier in the U.S. or in Britain. But um, uh, co-determination differs from unionization in that with unionization, management and employees, it's an adversarial situation, right? They're always at, they're at loggerhead. They have to be. That's the whole point of it, right? That's, they're negotiating for more wages in that way. There's a little bit less of an adversarial nature with co-determination because they're not only, they're still obviously the interests of the people on the board in a co-determination system are going to be basically to maximize wages. And then the interests of the people on the board that were elected by the shareholders are going to be to maximize dividends, right? But they at least both have a more common interest in continuance of the long-term health of the company in that situation, right? Uh, so that's, that's essentially a, uh, a co-determination system. And then eventually what I would like to see, this is a way further off thing, way further down the line. We're a million miles away from this right now. Um, but a, a system where a lot of these larger entities become co-ops. And this is something that already exists as well. Um, in Spain, one of their largest industrial companies is called Mondragon. Uh, that's organized as a co-op. In the U.S., we have public supermarkets, which is a supermarket chain um, operated that way. And basically what that is, is that is a step beyond co-determination where your employees are, just not, are not only just on the board, uh, but they now actually, the, the company no longer has shareholders. Um, the, the company is now entirely run for the benefit of employees. They elect the board, the board selects the management team. Typically the way these work, the, the governance structures can be somewhat complex, but the 10,000 foot view here is um, these, you know, you work for Mondragon, there's a salary that you get like any other employee. Um, and then the management team, just like any corporation, the management team determines, okay, we made this much in profit with a for-profit corporation. You're determining like how much of this are we going to distribute to the shareholders versus how much are we going to retain for future investment, right? Um, it's the same in a co-op, except the management team is deciding how much are we going to retain for future investment versus how much are we going to distribute to the employees. So the employees essentially on top of their normal salary, they receive payments that are similar to what we would consider a dividend in like a, a for-profit corporate structure. And then your incentives are aligned, right? Because your employees, um, obviously they want to maximize their own well-being, but they're not incentivized to do so against the long-term health of the company. Okay. You know, because they still want to have jobs in six months, a year, five years, they, you know, they actually have some incentive to keep this thing going over the long term. Do cooperatives solve all your problems? Absolutely not. Uh, all the regular issues with markets still take place. You could still have monopolies. If, you don't, if there's no market regulation, you could still have monopolies in a cooperative situation. Um, and I don't think that that makes the monopoly okay because that just sort of creates, if you had a monopoly, it sort of creates an aristocracy of employees where, they, where the ones that are working for the monopolists uh, are in a higher class than everyone else. So, you know, I'm not saying that I necessarily think that that solves all the issues again, because I'm not a libertarian socialist, right? That's, they would sort of think that once you socialize the ownership, you've sort of socialized, you've, you've eliminated all these issues. And, um, you know, I don't believe that at all. Another one thing I do want to jump back to too, that's a little less even far out than, um, something like a cooperative something that could be done in a much shorter time period 
is most of us, myself included, think, for instance, our current free trade system is bad. Um, I don't think that countries like the United States and Britain should not be engaging in free trade with countries like China, where workers uh, engage in deplorable, you know, deplorable conditions. Because what happens? That's a race to the bottom, right? You're sort of outsourcing decisions about the conditions that workers are going to work in from the local level to the global level. And that's bad. Um, that's not to say that I disagree with all free trade. Um, countries that have similar standards of living, like the United States and Britain, probably can work out an agreement amongst each other. Not to say that that doesn't require negotiation as well. One way you guys, and I know that you're not currently living, I keep calling you a Brit because it's where you're from, but uh, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not doxing you too much there. But for instance, one way, one way, one advantage that Britain has over the United States is unionization is still much higher in Britain than the United States. So even with countries that have very similar standards of living, I'm not saying that you could just have free open trade without sort of a bilateral agreement between the nations to preserve the things that they value. Um, I think that you very much still would need that. Um, however, uh, I, I'd prefer something like that to sort of this, we have, we sort of have a wild global free trade system today where we're trading with nations that just don't share uh, our values with regard to environmental or labor standards, frankly, just to use, um, just to sort of use two examples. Um, and then lastly, you know, another important point about distributism is basically just good old fashioned U.S. federalism, where you want to move uh, authority. Part of distributism is this concept of subsidiarity, where you move uh, authority to the lowest level where it can still be exercised effectively, which is different than anarchism, where they seek to move everything down to the lowest level, right? To the level of the individual. That's the lowest level. Um, subsidiarity and anarchism are very different because subsidiarity recognizes that if you move everything down to the level of the individual, what's going to happen is whoever are considered the quote unquote strong in whatever type of society you've set up, which are not in a capitalist society, the strong are not even typically strong in the traditional ancient ways, right? They're not physically strong. They're not great leaders per se. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't even necessarily embody these sort of ideals from that era. It's just strong in a capitalist society basically just means, you know, you're really good at ruthlessly accumulating capital is essentially all that means. So in a subsidiary, from a, a perspective of subsidiarity, when you, the anarchist problem is that when you move all authority down to that local level, well, you can't impinge upon the preferences of the strong right? So what are their preferences going to be? They're going to be to typically dominate the weak. So you, you essentially get an illusory freedom. So that's typically from a subsidy, a perspective of subsidiarity, anarchism is, uh, creates illusory freedom. It's complete freedom for a very small number of people where subsidiarity, we don't necessarily want everything dictated from on high at the top. We want the least amount of authority moved up there such that there's still broad, it's never going to be perfect. You know, there's never going to be a completely flat classless society, but so that there's still a uh, broad agency across a larger group of people. That's the whole concept of subsidiarity altogether. And then the other, I mean, the other concept there is just that, you know, just from a governmental perspective and subsidiarity, uh, you're, if you're going to have a government, which I want, I don't, I'm not an anarchist. Um, the guy, the guy, your neighbor is going to be more responsive to your needs than some guy that lives 5,000 miles away, right? That's just sort of the, it's sort of the nature of, it's human nature. We can't do anything about that, right? So that's the other benefit of subsidiarity. My mayor is probably more responsive to my needs than my governor. My governor is probably more responsive to my needs than the president of the United States. So again, we can't fall into that trap of even at the governmental level, bringing all authority down to the local level, because then local states or local municipalities can get dominated by other larger, more powerful ones. That's again, subsidiarity works even at the level of government. That's the idea behind the European Union. Um, the, the idea behind the European Union is essentially to be not dominated by the United States. I mean, that's, that's basically why it exists. Um, so that's, 
I kind of rambled a little bit there, but that's the sort of the basic idea behind subsidiary. Well, listening, listening to you talk about this stuff, just um, and seeing you as well. You know, I've heard you on the podcast, but now seeing you, like, you know, you're so passionate about it, so like, and knowledgeable about it. Clearly, this knowledge hasn't been acquired over like the last six months of reading. This is something that you've known about or studied for a very, very long time. Um, where does Bitcoin tie into all of this? Like when, like, you, you know, you've got these ideas in your mind, uh, like you, yeah. see, you, you see all the pieces of the puzzle uh, as you've just laid out very, very well. Then all of sure. a sudden, bam, Bitcoin lands on your lap and you're like, what the hell is this? And, you know, what, what, what kind of drew you to it? Yeah, well, I mean, the idea with Bitcoin is it is a decentralization of power over the money supply, right? I mean, that's the idea. One of the ways that in a, in a capitalist society that power centralizes over time is the larger players in that society are able to control the money. And they do so in the United States. They do so in Britain, right? So both the U.S. and Br I don't know as much about the Bank of England as I do about the U.S. Federal Reserve. But in the, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve is owned by its member banks. So essentially what you're doing is you're saying like, oh, all the biggest banks in your country get to determine how uh, the money supply works. This is bad, right? Because they're obviously going to manipulate this in furtherance of their own interests. Um, inflationary currency in general obviously has the, due to the Cantillon effect, uh, has this ability where it makes uh, people who sit in positions of power richer and everybody else poorer, right? So it has a centralizing effect in that way. Because as the, as the, for those that are a little less familiar with the Cantillon effect, which probably most of you uh, listening to a Bitcoin podcast understand, but the idea is when the central bank expands the monetary supply, the biggest benefits go to the people that receive the money first, which are basically giant businesses and other banks, right? Those are the people that get the money first because they're able to spend that money before the effects of inflation have set in. Inflation it takes some time for that money to filter into the economy and the inflation to start. So by the time it gets to everybody else at the bottom, you know, they're getting no benefit from it because they're getting extra money, but they're also getting inflated prices. Whereas everybody that sort of got a jump start there, they were able to use the extra money before the prices essentially caught up, which gives big businesses a huge advantage, uh, you know, over small ones. So, Anything that can seek to sort of uh, reduce the power of central banking would be good from a distributist perspective. Typically, and class, this is not new. I mean, distributists have always, since the beginning, always favored gold as money, um, you know, before Bitcoin was a thing, essentially for these reasons. So for you then, Bitcoin... I mean, like, where, where do you where do you see it playing out? Like, you know, across across all of those spectrums that you just talked about. Well, I don't think that, as I've said on some other interviews, I'm like an all of the above type person. Uh, there's, I don't believe in one weird trick thinking. Meaning, mm -hmm. uh, one weird trick thinking means like, oh, if we just did this one crazy thing, like every problem would solve itself. And I, I don't think that. But I think that Bitcoin, for the, all the reasons I just gave, is a really large decentralizing factor and potentially a really important one. Um, and that's why I care about it, right? Essentially, my whole, the whole view I have of these things is anything that can try and decentralize capital is a net positive, and Bitcoin cuts in that direction. Right. Okay. And one last uh, question about um, like uh, what, what's been going on in the, in the U.S. with the run up to the um, elections and um, what have you. Uh, Andrew Wang was was running um, Yang for, uh, for president, and with yes. his universal basic income policy. Right. What are your thoughts on that? And um, yeah, could you just explain to us exactly, you know, what 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 that would look like, and you know? Yeah, I mean, UBI is probably more in the direction of what Block warned about uh, in terms of uh, arriving at a servile state, which we haven't talked about yet. So, the early distributist writers thought that the arc of capitalism would be such that you, you'd have this issue where 
Um, capital would consolidate over time. Due to economies of scale, there's a huge advantage to being a bigger producer. So producers would get bigger and bigger and bigger, eventually be able to drive out their competition. The most efficient one would win, and you'd have an economy with very few producers. Okay, But there's, some, there's an issue here, uh, essentially, that, they, that Block referred to as the capitalist paradox, and it works like this. So in this point where, let's say, there's still a few producers left in my industry, right? What do I want to do? I want to increase my efficiency because I want to be, I want to beat them out. I want to be the survivor. Okay. Well, I'll ask you this question. We'll see if you can guess what's by far the easiest way for me to increase my own efficiency as a business, my product, my, in making my goods, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, well, I'd say, um, streamlining research and development and, um, you know, getting better. Yeah, that's hard, man. That's so hard. It takes huh? years it's okay. expensive. No, it's cutting wages. It's just like oh, I just right. yeah, pay cool. my employees less. Because as long as I, <laughs> as long as I pay them enough that they show up and do the basic stuff that they're, even if they don't do as good a job, it still might, it still usually works out, right? Mm -hmm. um, is to is to cut their wages. So the problem though is as you consolidate, as there's fewer and fewer producers. Those producers are also employers, right? So as they're cutting wages, you create a death spiral whereby uh, by cutting wages, they now can't afford the stuff that you're producing, right? This is why, this is why Balak called it the capitalist paradox. The, the actions that an individual producer has to take to succeed, when all producers start to begin to engage in those actions, the market actually can't survive. You end up in a depression. Um, is what happens there. And then the depression is kind of like a giant reboot, right? Where like a bunch of new producers sort of rise up as, as out of the chaos, let's say. So that is, I mean, that is an economic philosophy, I suppose. It's a rough one, uh, constant booms and, uh, and depressions. Um, so the, the, the par block believed that basically that, the producers in this scenario were not morons that they would figure out eventually that they were screwed, that they had to collude, right? Like when it got to the point that there were only a few, a few of us left in a given industry, or even if we're, if we're horizontally integrated, maybe there's just not even that many producers in the whole economy. It makes sense for you and me to say, Hey, let's like agree that we're going to set like this floor below our employees wages, right? so that at least they'll be able to buy stuff from us, okay? Like that's, that's sort of this, the idea here. But we would probably set that floor so that they, they, we would set it so that they wouldn't be able to really save and really accumulate any capital such that any of them could get any funny ideas about starting up their own competitor to us. But we can set the floor well enough that they, that they, they can like live, right? Like they're not gonna starve, they're going to be able to buy food. They're going to have a house. They're going to have this basic stuff. And that's what Block called a servile state because he saw that as basically a new form of slavery, more so in the sort of uh, uh, prehistoric, like Roman era of slavery than what we think of in, in like, you know, uh, 19th century United States or 18th century United States or whatever. Um, but this idea that you know, you had to work for this guy, but he took care of all your basic necessities in return. But that was it. You weren't going anywhere. Like this was your lot in life and you, you got by, but it sort of was what it was. And that's the idea that Block called the servile state. And that's what we've seen um, in the West over time. So a lot of, you know, libertarians will tend to, let's say, not like social programs, right? Uh, UBI is just a, an example of a, a redistributive social program. But from the distributist perspective, we, when we look at the capitalist paradox, we realize that those redistributive programs aren't anti-capitalist. They're necessary. Those are basically happening solely because the biggest producers in the economy want them, like they in fact need them. And if there wasn't a government in place to act as a mechanism for that re redistribution, they would just collude and do it themselves, right? Like they can use a government, they can collude and do it themselves. It doesn't really much matter. They need to do it to cement their position. So to get to your back to your UBI question, UBI is like a classic like servile state 
uh, solution in that it creates a very heavy level of dependence, right? Like, you know, it's designed to just sort of set this floor, but not really give anyone any real agency or anything like that. Further, and by the way, sometimes, even though something, something does something like that, we still need to do it. For instance, I don't oppose social security. Okay. Like most, that's going to sound radical on a Bitcoin podcast, but it puts me well in line with like probably 99% of Americans. Right. I don't, I don't, uh, you, I'm sure you know what social security is, right? Are you familiar with? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so social security, I don't oppose the existence of social security. It's just kind of necessary. I, you know, before we had it in the United States over 50% of senior citizens lived in abject poverty. So, you know, we had to do it. Um, but I don't view that as like a cure-all or where things should stop or things of that nature. My problem with the UBI is the UBI would be even more inflationary than Social Security uh, because it affects an even larger, broader group of people. And even more so than that, uh, I think you have an issue with the UBI where – so. I grew up in a place where people, it's a seasonal economy. People typically work six months of the year and they collect unemployment benefits the other six months of the year. So we kind of have a UBI, right? Because they qualify for, for six months is long enough where I live that you can collect unemployment after working six months. And by the time unemployment ran out, you'd be ready for the next season and you'd have a job again, right? So we kind of had our own little UBI system for half the year for, mo for a huge number of people where I grew up. And I can tell you it ain't good because what most of those people do, and I'm not, I, I'm not saying this is a moral failing. I'm saying it's, you haven't, when you don't create material conditions for people to thrive, bad stuff's going to happen. And that's not because they're bad people or I, because I look down on them. That's not my point. Um, anybody in this situation or a lot of people in this situation went up in the same way. So my point is what a lot, not all, but what a large number of people do when they're put into that situation is heroin, frankly, um, because the, you know it's just a it's the it's the sort of nature of having an idle, purposeless life. You follow what I'm saying? I'm not saying that a life where your only purpose of survival is better, and literally every day you're insecure and uh, you don't know where food's coming from. I'm not saying that is a better system than one where you have like a very low level of basic provisions and have no purpose. But I'm, I'm just saying the UBI creates its whole own set of problems for that, for all those reasons. It's not, it's, it's not good. Um, not, and again, I don't blame anyone that's stuck in a system like that. It's not really their fault, but that's, those are my thoughts on UBI. Wow. And what if it was universal Bitcoin income? Well, same problem, man. It's, just, it's, it's the same problem. <laughs> just, a few a, sets, a just a few sets. Just a few sets for everybody, like uh, you know, once once a week sort of thing. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for answering that. Let's get on to um, what you're doing at um, Keykeeper IRA, which um, is a business that you set up. What are you? What, yeah. How are you helping people? What's um, what's like? You're clearly trying to help people grow and protect their Bitcoin, from what I can understand. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm licensed an attorney and a CPA. I mean, that's my job. Um, and most of what my practice engages in is setting up legal structures for people such that they can, uh, hold Bitcoin in their retirement accounts, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do for reasons I'll explain. So this part of the podcast will probably be more interesting to your U S listeners, uh, obviously, okay. cause it's going to apply in the US, but an IRA in the US, just for anyone who's not in the US, is very similar to uh, what's called an RRSP in Canada or in Australia, what's called a, I think they call it a super annotation fund or mm -hmm. some, something along those lines. Um, what, does it, um, what does it stand for, the uh, IRA? Individual Retirement Account. Okay. So it's a, it's a type of defined contribution retirement account. Okay. Meaning it's not like a pension where the benefit is defined. It's the it's tax advantaged for you to contribute to this account. Okay. And a lot of people already have big IRAs because when, when that type of account is done at an employer, it's typically called a 401k instead of an IRA. 
Um, and but you, with an employer, you have to invest based on the investment options that your employer offers. But in the states, when you leave your employer, you can on a tax-free basis take out all the money from their 401k as long as you put it into an IRA. Okay, because you can't start taking it out of whether it's a 401k or, or IRA until you're over 59 and a half years old. It's a retirement account if you don't want to pay penalties. So that's the you get a tax advantage for doing it, but you're you're delaying until you're 59 and a half. That's the idea here. So, uh, and there are two types in the states. Uh, there's traditional where you get the tax deduction up front for putting the money in there, and then you have to pay tax after you retire when you pull it out. And, but the growth is tax-free in between those two dates. And then there's Roth, where you don't get any tax deduction for putting it in there. You still don't pay any tax on the growth. Uh, but when you pull it out after you retire, you don't have to pay any tax at all. So a lot of people use the Roth for Bitcoin because they think it's going to you know, increase parabolically in value, um, which is what Roths tend to be very popular. But you can do either. So normally with an IRA... Uh, IRAs in the States are required to have what's called a third party custodian. Okay. Meaning it, it generally has to be a bank or a brokerage, um, that acts as that third party custodian. So you're typically limited to the investment options that they offer. So what we do is we create an account for you at a third party custodian that is willing to have an account where the only asset held by your account is a limited liability company. Okay. Which is sort of, I don't think you have, L it's similar to what you call an LLP in, uh, in Britain. Uh, but it's, it's, it's different. It's like, it's similar to a corporation, but it's different. Uh, you can think of it that way. That's the only asset actually held by the custodian of your IRA. And then you're appointed as manager of that LLC, which means even though you don't own it, your IRA owns it as manager, you're the only one that has control over its assets. So we set up a structure for you so that you can buy your Bitcoin through the LLC such that you're able to hold all the private keys. You don't have to pay any, a lot of the Bitcoin IRA companies, you have to pay like a storage fee or they charge you trading fees. There's none of that here. You're able to just buy your Bitcoin normally, store it yourself. Uh, and it still qualifies because even though the third party custodian isn't holding the Bitcoin for you, they are holding the LLC for you and the LLC owns the Bitcoin, even though the custodian can't actually touch the keys because they're not the manager of the LLC. So LLC's ownership and management are two different things in an LLC. That's why we use that structure. Wow. You figured that out? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm not that smart. Uh, this was, this had been used for IRAs um, for, years uh, for private real estate investments for people that, that wanted to just buy like a rental building using their IRA. I just adapted it to Bitcoin. Uh, and we take people through the whole thing step by step. One of the key things, like if people try to do this on their own, they'll mess up is like they might open the exchange account in their personal name instead of the LLC's name. That's a big no-no. Uh, we can get the checking account open for you for the LLC, which can be tricky if it's an LLC owned by an IRA. We set you up with the licensed custodian that's willing to just hold this LLC for you. You know, we sort of handle all these different aspects for you so that you don't mess up. Because if you mess up, you have to pay tax on the entire amount of your IRA balance. So it's a, it's a really big problem uh, if you mess up when you're setting up this sort of uh, self-directed IRA structure. And the other thing I should mention, if any of our listeners are out there in California, I won't get into the weeds on this. But we have a solution. California imposes an $800 a year annual tax on LLCs. Even if the LLC is not formed in California, if the manager lives in California, uh, they, that tax is still imposed. We have a solution for those California clients as well, where we use a specially designed trust vehicle in place of an LLC, which allows you all the same benefits, all the same setup, uh, hold your own keys, the whole nine yards, but you don't have to worry about that $800. Uh, annual fee from the state of California. Right. Okay. And how um, we were talking about this just briefly before we started recording about how um, in the US, uh, Bitcoin is treated, um, treated as a, a stock or a share rather than a currency. 
Did yeah, you- it's treated as property. So similar to stock, stocks and bonds in the U.S. are treated as property for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, gold is treated as property uh, for tax purposes. Currency is not. Currency has its own separate tax regime um, for for tax purposes. And so Bitcoin is treated like a stock or a bond or a bar of gold where you buy it for, uh, you know, let's say you buy one Bitcoin for $10,000. That $10,000 becomes what's called your cost basis in the Bitcoin. If you sell it or even if you spend it, because spending it is treated as a deemed sale. So if I spent my one Bitcoin to buy a $10,000, to buy a $15,000 car, let's say, that would be treated as if I sold my one Bitcoin for $15,000 and then bought the car with dollars. That's how hmm. the, the US tax system treats, they consider that a barter transaction when you buy something with property rather than currency. So th- what you pay tax on when you spend or sell your Bitcoin is the difference between the proceeds that you got when you spent or sold it and the cost basis. So if I bought my Bitcoin for 10,000, I sold it for fifteen thousand. I pay uh, tax on five thousand dollars. If I held my Bitcoin for at least a year, I would pay uh, tax at favorable rates because it would be considered a long-term capital gain, which means you pay tax at a lower rate than your normal income tax rate. And do you know how how did it get to the decision to be um, put in with stocks and shares rather than treated as a currency? Well, the IRS issued a notice uh, back in twenty fourteen. Uh, regarding that. And basically, because it wasn't addressed in the statute, right? Because the statute pre-existed the existence of Bitcoin. They just looked at the way that people were using Bitcoin. If they were buying it more for investment purposes, or if they were buying it to use it more in the way that we normally envision currency. Uh, And I think they rightly probably at the time determined that, you know, people were using this more as an investment or an inflation hedge in the way that they would use gold, for instance rather than uh rather than the way they would use you know dollars or euros or yen do you think that changes at any time yeah i mean and if it did so because this ruling was not statutory i mean they could certainly if things changed in time issue you know update that ruling in time and say okay well now it the way it's bitcoin is being used now it sort of more fits the definition of a currency than a uh than property and that would make sense i mean also if, if Bitcoin did become uh, at some point start to be used more like a currency and the IRS didn't update its ruling on the issue because it's not a statute, it's not above challenging. The IRS is required to issue those rulings in, in, uh, in accordance with the statute. So someone could sue in tax court and say the, ru- the ruling had essentially become invalid uh, because, you know, at that point in the future, Bitcoin was now being used as a currency. Therefore, the IRS lacked the authority to properly uh, classify it as property. Interesting. So if government, for example, were to start you know, collecting Bitcoin, then they, they would be well, well positioned to just turn that into, into currency if they wanted to, by putting pressure on the IRS. Yeah, they wouldn't even have to. I mean, the IRS is part of the executive branch. Uh, yeah, it's part of the executive branch of the United States. They're totally under the control of the president. Um, so the, I mean, it could be done by executive order by the president. Uh, I don't think that that's the, that's not the route these things usually go. I mean, it usually goes through the more normal rulemaking process, um, you know, within the department of the treasury. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not a political process. It's, it's an administrative process. Uh, the IRS now Congress could take that power by, passing a statute, Congress could pass a statute that defines what Bitcoin is. And if Congress did that, that would supersede any administrative determination made by the Treasury Department or the IRS. Hmm. Because they're, they're subservient to obviously the statutes. They, the, the IRS administers the Internal Revenue Code. Congress is the one that passes the Internal Revenue Code. Do you think it happens? Do you think at some stage that there's enough pressure to get it changed um, to a currency? And if it does, what what kind of implications does that have? Uh, it'll probably be changed. If I had to guess, I mean, I think it would pr- that change will probably come through the tax court system. You know, if it just if it gets to the point where it's being used as currency 
and the, uh, the Congress probably won't do anything. Uh, and then if the IRS sits on its hands and is loath to make the change, that's what tax court's for. Uh, and then, you know, tax court isn't necessarily where it ends. I mean, tax court rulings are appealable like anything else, potentially all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Um, is there anything, um, anything else that you want to uh, talk about um, the services that you can offer people and uh, where can they find you? And because um, I'm sure that it is, it's just a minefield that uh, people are trying to, uh, you know, trying to navigate at the moment. And I'm sure your information go a long way. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so keykeeperira.com is my website. You can schedule a telephone consultation with me right on the site, sort of get the process rolling if you think this is something that you're potentially interested in. Uh, I'm sure in the show notes, you'll be able to find my Twitter. Uh, and yeah, those, those are the two best places to find me. Excellent. And I always like to ask uh, a question before we close out. If there was there was one person that you could uh, educate about uh, Bitcoin that would then go out and share that message with their audience uh, who could reach a far wider, um, you know, demographic than, than we could. Who, who do you think that would be? Who would you like to come out and say? Uh, well, I want to pick someone with a huge audience, right? Like, so <laughs> it kind of depends. Right. So like I could say someone that I don't care about at all that just cause they have the largest audience. Like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But what, what, what's their demographic, right? They might just be, uh, you know, what I guess what's the demographic you're trying to reach? I don't know. I, someone that pops into my head is someone who I think would be into Bitcoin. If someone, if the right people got to them and uh, I think might have viewers that would be into it. And he has a pretty large audience is Tucker Carlson. He's a talk show host here in the United States, like on Fox news. Okay. Um, so and what, what does he talk about? I, I'm not familiar with what's uh, it's, uh, it's sorry, Tucker. It's a, it's a uh, conservative. I mean, it's on Fox. It's the, it's far and away like, like orders of magnitude. You know, those talk, you have them in Britain too. Those talking head politics shows. Yeah. Yeah. So in the U.S., he's by orders of magnitude more popular. I think he gets it's he's on five nights a week. I think he gets like three to five million viewers a night, uh -huh. which is huge. Um, and he's well known for being uh, a couple things. I mean, it's on the conservative side, but he is an ex-libertarian. So he is someone that used to be a libertarian, but no longer uh, believes in uh, you know libertarian ideas. So it's kind of interesting his a lot of his stuff tends to go viral on twitter a lot of his segments because it's very uh it can be heterodox in that he'll be critical of big government and then he'll also be critical of big business right uh like large global corporations and things of that nature he's a controversial figure obviously because all political figures are controversial especially in the united states uh when you're seen as lining up with more of one side or the other uh, but yeah, I don't know. That's what, that's what first popped in my head there. And do you think he, uh, did, has he ever like, um, like hinted? Yeah, I've never heard, I've never heard him mention, I mean, I don't watch the show every night or anything, but <laughs> right. no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think he's ever mentioned because I think I would know about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for your time and, uh, your insights and your knowledge. Honestly, it sounds as though you've like swallowed a library on this kind of stuff in the past. Like, you know, you, it's amazing. Um, really appreciate you coming on the show and supporting the show. And uh, I hope um, people reach out and, uh, and get to say hi. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Have a great evening. You too. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the show. And thanks again uh, for, uh, to Jeff for coming on the show and supporting Once Bitten. Um, his insights are incredible. Like I said at the beginning of the interview, I had listened to some of his other podcasts, and each time I, I just get like thrown up in the air with, um, with, with his insights into what he calls the political economy. Which, um, and that is the way he sees it. It's not like when you meet other people and they say, oh, you know, I belong to this party, I belong to this party, or I believe in this party, and it's, it's a party that I resonate with, and 
that's it. You know, there's no turning me. What what he sees is something completely different. What he sees is like that the, there is something almost from every party within one party, if that makes sense. I'm still trying to put my my finger on exactly, you know, the 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 point I'm trying to make and the the realizations I'm trying to come to. It's the blurred lines. It's the blurred lines between these beliefs. You know, unless you are a real hardliner and never ever going to be turned and not open to absolutely anything at all, then there's no way you could identify yourself as just one thing. Because, I mean, he, he <laughs> you heard him explain it. There is so much that goes into this. Absolutely so much. You, it, it's... It was really interesting for me. It was really interesting for me to to, um, and I hope it uh, it helped some other people come to uh, some some conclusions for themselves and in their own minds. Very interesting as well. Towards the end of the show, there when he was talking about uh, the the tax implications of Bitcoin in the U.S. particularly, and how that became classed as um, a security or property and get, or a stock or a share, and it gets taxed in such a way. Rather than a currency, which clearly Bitcoin is, I, I I can't see it as anything other else than a currency. So, is there going to be a change there in the next, you know, two, five, or ten years' time? I think there's definitely something to consider that that is a, a stark possibility. And what is that going? You know, what are the implications of that going forward? What are other nations going to do? How are they going to see it? You know, once they start, you know, following following suit here, uh, it's going to be very it, it, going to be another huge gray area in the story of Bitcoin, and uh, and one to definitely watch because you know businesses are being built around this as um, as Jeff has done. So please reach out to Jeff. Uh, obviously, it's very U.S. centric at the moment, but I think um, his insights um, will go a long way to helping other people uh on, on the show um sorry who listened to the show but uh, yeah give him a shout he's clearly knowledgeable he knows this stuff inside out and uh, i really appreciate his time to coming on the show and sharing that with us um if you can support the show the only way to do that is retweet it share it tell your friends tell your mom and dad tell your brothers sisters cousins whatever uh you know we're, uh, it's, it's still a brand new show i'm uh, i'm only one month in not even and uh still trying to uh, build an audience Thank you for listening. If you've got this far, really appreciate it. Have a great morning, afternoon, evening, or night, wherever you are, and um, and take care. Thank you so much. Reach me at uh, princey1976 on Twitter. Or you can find me at um, once-bitten.com. Take care. Thank you.